0: Good morning. My name is Leslie Rowe. I'm here on staff at Denton North Church. And there are just a couple of announcements I want to make this morning. Um, One is that last week, uh, Brad said that we would be doing a split service on Martin Luther King Sunday when winter camp is going on. And he said that it was going to be a service on dating It is not. It is going to be a service on dating and marriage. And so everyone will be included that is here that morning. We will split off into men and women. And that'll be our topic for discussion that morning. Then next Sunday will be our Christmas service, and it will be the last service that we have here um, at the Art Council for the year. Um, we will not meet here the 16th or the 20th. I mean, we will not meet here the 23rd or the 30th. Um, And then we'll start again the first Sunday in January. So just kind of keep that in mind. When you talk to people, remind them there's no service on the 23rd and the 30th. Encourage people to go to one of our other churches or to go to another church in Denton on those Sundays. It's a great time to get to go to church with your family, to get to go to church with some people you haven't seen in a while, or just to try out a new place and see what it's like to be a visitor there and to be somebody that comes in and doesn't know anybody. Um, There are a lot of great Christmas services at some of the churches in town that would be really encouraging for you. And so I would just encourage you to take advantage of those Sundays um, to to worship with someone else. So this morning is the last um, sermon in our series on images and stories of the gospel, And I hope it won't be the last time that you think in terms of images and stories of the gospel. I hope that you will continue to think about why Jesus used stories and why God had the Bible written in story um, form. Why is that important? Why do we need to try and be people that can tell stories? Um, Obviously, our biggest goal is so that we can share the gospel with other people. Um, But we have to really understand what Jesus was trying to communicate through his parables and stories in order to tell stories of our own that communicate the gospel. So I just think there's a lot of benefit uh, to thinking in stories, and I hope that you'll continue to try and do that. I asked Devin to share a story that he submitted this morning, and so I'm going to have him come up and do that right now. Devin, where? Oh, there you are. Sorry. You might, you probably want to go up there and use the microphone.
1: My eyes open, and specks of sand fall into them, and I see darkness. When my mouth opens, I go down some sand. I think I've been here a while. I like it, just lying, not thinking, comfortable. Sometimes bright beams will penetrate the sand, like bullet holes, letting light into, into a dark room. I ignore it, close my eyes, and go back to sleep. I don't dream, <laughs> but I wake up soon enough. The light penetrates again. A voice from within myself says, get up. I question it because I am already up. So I go back to sleep. The next time I hear the words again, I grapple with myself. I've been here my whole life, why do I need to get up? Now the light is stronger, I decide to get up. My hands move, my head moves upward and I feel the sand all around me start to reduce. Suddenly I feel a small breeze hitting my upper body. It's perfect, not too hot or cold. Specks of sand slowly fall from my face. I see the sun, the clear day, and the sea. It's never ending, everything is so bright. I feel joy and I start to smile. Everything I see is new, but I know it's good. I can breathe, I've never breathed like this before. I used to suffocate. The sand is still on me. It stays wherever you go, but I have confidence it will go away. The air I breathe, the clear day, and the sun is too powerful. It won't allow the sand to stay. I look around and I see people under the sand. I see the shape of the bodies hidden beneath. They're lined up along the beach like a cemetery. I see people blurred by the sun, standing in the distance. I walk toward them, careful not to step on the people underneath. I meet them. They're of all ages, races, and ethnicities. We start to share our stories. We talk about how we were in the sand and how we got up. The beach keeps on going, but we see other people standing farther down. They're helping those in the sand. We decide to help, too.
0: Yeah, so I asked Devin to share that this morning because his story talks about um, sharing the good news with people and about helping people get up from the sand. And we're going to kind of focus in on that a little bit this morning. So a few Sundays back, Ryan challenged me, Ryan Plachey, challenged me to tell a story about one of the pieces of artwork in the room. And so I chose this piece over here and I decided that what I would do is start the story and then I'll let you guys finish the story in groups. So I'm gonna read you the first part of the story and then I'm gonna have you finish it. So here we go. Once upon a time, now you finished the story. <laughs> so trying to tell a story about one of these pieces of artwork I've thought about it and thought about it and thought about it and could not do it. So that's about the best you're going to get is once upon a time. And, you know, you can just take that and finish it. So we're going to start in Luke 19 today. (laughs) And we're actually going to read what uh, Jesus has to say. uh, Because I think it's a much better story. So one of the interesting things and one of the most exciting things to me about reading the Bible is that I'll read and I'll think, particularly with the parables, I'll think these are just all separate little stories. And so I almost wanna read them um, like this is a whole little story in itself and it's not really connected to anything else around it. But when you read Luke chapter 19, all of the different parts of Luke chapter 19 are very connected. And I always get really excited when I see that um, because that doesn't come naturally for me. And so I know that when I'm seeing connections like that, that that's the Holy Spirit leading and teaching. But it starts with the story of Zacchaeus, and it tells us that he was a chief tax collector, that he was wealthy, that he wanted to see Jesus, and that he was short- And he was too short to see Jesus among the crowds as he was passing through, so he climbs up in a tree. And here's the thing I want you to note about this story. Jesus sees Zacchaeus. Jesus sees him, and he goes to his house, and through the interactions that they have there, Jesus says that salvation comes to Zacchaeus' house. And the story is here to let us know Jesus' mission, Jesus tells us his mission is to seek and save the lost. And right after this, Jesus tells the parable of the minas, which is what we're going to focus on today. And it seems to indicate in the text that this parable of the minas is a continuation of this interaction with Zacchaeus. So I'm going to start reading in Luke 19, and I'm going to read 11 through 27. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas, which is about three months wages. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man." You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put your money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. So I wanna make a few observations about uh, this parable before I actually tell my story this morning. Um, One of the things I want you to notice is that when Jesus gives his servants the minas, he gives each of them one. He gives all of them the same amount. Um, And then the first thing we see as we read through the text is Jesus get an explanation for why he's telling this parable. So the reason that Jesus says he's, ter- he's telling this parable is because they were journeying to Jerusalem and the people that were with him thought he was going to institute the kingdom as soon as they got to Jerusalem. And so he wanted them to realize that there was much more involved than that, that he was gonna suffer and die, that he was gonna be raised again that he was gonna go back to heaven and that many years were gonna go by before he returned to completely establish his kingdom. And he tells this parable because he wants them to know, when I go back to heaven, you are not just here waiting for my return, I have work for you to do. And he tells them, this is what I want you to do while you're waiting for my kingdom to be completely established he tells this parable to tell them what it is they're supposed to do. They're supposed to be actively working for him with what he entrusted to them. And so in the parable, what he entrusted to them was a mina. But what does he give us? What is he entrusted to us? In Matthew 28, it tells us that he has entrusted the gospel to us. And that the work that he wants us to be doing is to be sharing the... Like the servants had to give an account to the king for what they did with the mina. We're going to give an account of what we've done while he's been gone. So let's stop here for a second and talk about the man that took the mina and hid it away. Because I don't know about you, but to me that doesn't seem like such a bad thing. I'm not very much of a risk taker. And so the idea of putting it away somewhere safe so that when he comes back, I've got it to give back to him doesn't seem like a bad thing to me. But it seems in the parable like the king thought that was a bad thing. So let's think about it another way. This is a random question. But for those of you that like cars, what is your dream car? Like if you could have anything you wanted, what would it be? Mustang. A Tesla. A 64 Mustang. A Porsche. A what? Oh, a Bugatti. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So, So a lot of us have like what we think our dream car is. So let's say that you've worked really hard or maybe somebody's gifted you your dream car and you're very carefully driving it around Denton as I'm sure you would be when some reckless driver, whose name could be Brad Davis, (laughs) runs into you. And so your dream car is now damaged. So you take it to the shop, you get an estimate of what it's going to cost. Do what? Yeah, you take it to Brad Davis' shop, and you get this overblown estimate of what it's going to cost to fix it. (laughs) And you leave it there to get the work done. And when you come back to pick it up, Brad says, Oh, yes, here's your car. I haven't touched it. You can have it back just like it was. And he hasn't done a thing with it, he hasn't done his job. And that's the message here. Jesus is saying, I left you a job to do. And my absence is not a time for you to just sit back, play it safe, and wait for me to come back. Do your job. The next thing we notice in the parable is that the servants are to use the master's mina in the face of citizens who angrily protest, we do not want this man to reign over us. See, in our lives, these are people or maybe just a society that's hostile toward God and does not want to submit to Jesus as Lord. And it's in a hostile environment that we're to do our job of living out and sharing the gospel story and multiplying it by investing it in the lives of people. Clearly, there is always risk in doing business in a hostile environment. However, what we see here is that the greater risk is to not do business at all, but to carefully wrap up the master's mina in a handkerchief not using it for his purposes. See, Jesus seeks people that he can trust to take risks. Cowards are never going to build his kingdom. During his last encounter with his apostles, he told them to take the gospel to the whole world, an impossible mission if ever there was one. Yet he knew the men he had chosen, For they did just that. They took huge risks to spread the gospel. And he expects us to be risk takers as well. Now, that's a really hard thing for me to say because I've already told you I am not a risk taker. I am a play it safe, do the safest thing possible, and that's got to be the best thing kind of person. And so, when Jesus says that he wants us to take risks for the gospel, my immediate thought is well, he may want us to do this, but he would want us to really calculate carefully about how much risk to take here. And he would not want us to put our lives at risk. But if you look at the life of Christ, if you look at the life of his disciples, if you look at the lives of the members of the early church, you cannot come away with the conclusion that Jesus doesn't want us to take risks for the gospel. They gave up everything, many of them, including their lives. So God expects us to take risks as well. Another detail that I think is important in this parable is who is gaining from the mina that the king left for them to invest. The mina was invested for the king's gain, not for the servant's gain. And God gives us money, he gives us intelligence, he gives us jobs, he gives us houses, he gives us cars, and he gives us the gospel, but it's not just to invest in ourselves. It's to invest for the kingdom. He's entrusted it to us to invest for the kingdom. It's not so that we can build a big name for ourselves, so we can have a huge savings account, so we can buy nice houses and nice cars. Those things aren't bad, and I'm not saying that he doesn't give us some of that as blessings for us to enjoy. It's just not our purpose, and it's not the work he's left us to do. As we see the servants give an account of their work, it's implied what is clearly taught elsewhere, that the power of the gospel is in the message itself, not in the skill of the messenger. And I think that this is a really difficult one for us to remember as well. The servants don't say, Master, my great business skill has multiplied your mina. When they give it back to him, they say, Your mina has made 10 more. See, the power was not in the servant any more than the power is with us as we present the gospel. It doesn't depend on us to be a great presenter or to have good sales skills. But it just depends on God's power working through his word as we share that. And that's important because if the man who hid the mina had realized the power that was in it and that it was not in his own investing skills, he wouldn't have been afraid to do something different with it. And if we realize that the power of sharing the gospel does not rest in us, it rests in the power of the gospel itself, we won't be afraid to share it. And then finally, just a reminder that our focus is to be on Jesus. People that we invest in may not respond to Jesus. They may steal from us, lie to us, betray us, hurt us. We see it all throughout the Bible. We see it all throughout Jesus' life. And in our eyes, we may fail at doing the job of investing the gospel. But we've got to remember who we're doing it for. We're doing it for Jesus. We're doing it with the power of the spirit that he left and not our own power. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. See, we'll never lose if we faithfully work for Jesus. Keep your focus on pleasing him. Okay, so I want you to notice that this parable is sandwiched between the story of Zacchaeus, which I briefly told you, and then we have this parable, and then we have the story of Jesus being welcomed to Jerusalem as king. And that's a real high point in this story. But this chapter ends by telling us that every day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and that the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. See, these three stories are connected. We see in the story of Zacchaeus that Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost. We see in the parable of the Minas that sharing the gospel is what the work that he's left for us to do until he comes back, and that it's risky. And that if we risk our lives, we'll get more than we ever dreamed. But if we play it safe, we'll end up with nothing. And then the rest of the chapter gives an an example of how Jesus risks his life to go to Jerusalem and offer people the gospel. That even in the face of people seeking to kill him, he continues to preach the gospel. And as I tell my story this morning, I want you to think about the lesson from this parable that there's always risk in living like Jesus and doing his work, but that the greater risk is to do nothing at all. So keep that thought in mind. I want to tell you the story this morning of two men. One's name is Denver and one's name is Ron. Denver was born into a family of black sharecroppers in the Red River Parish, Louisiana in 1937. He was raised by his grandmother, but she was killed in a house fire and he wound up with his aunt and uncle. For almost 30 years, he worked as a sharecropper and experienced the institutional racism that was still present in the deep deep South at the time. No matter how hard he and his family worked, they were perpetually in debt to the man who owned the plantation where they lived and worked. In addition, while he was changing a flat tire for a white woman on a country road when he was a teenager, Denver was attacked by three young white men on horses who lassoed him and dragged him down the road. And it was only at the intervention of a passerby that his life was spared. This event clouded his outlook on life, and he eventually hopped on a passing freight train to see if he could find a better life somewhere else. Ron was born in 1950 into a lower-middle-class white family in Haltom City, Texas, which is a suburb of Fort Worth. He grew up having to help manage his depressed alcoholic father and often felt out of place in school. He spent the summers on his grandparents' Texas farm and saw racism in action without really recognizing what it was. He started college in East Texas before transferring to Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, where he met Deborah, his future wife. After leaving Louisiana, Denver spent decades living on the streets, due in part to the fact that he never learned to read or write because he was sharecropping. He moved around the country, Dallas, Fort Worth, Los Angeles, and spent 10 years in a Louisiana prison for trying to rob a city bus. After leaving prison, he returned to Fort Worth and became an increasingly angry and sometimes dangerous member of the homeless community. Slowly, he became involved with the Union Gospel Mission, a Christian-based homeless shelter but remained isolated from the people around him. One of the quotes uh, that Denver made was this, and I really like this one. He said, sometimes you just got to bless the hell out of people, literally. And he said, some people have a lot of hell in them. And I thought that was very insightful. After graduating college and marrying Deborah, Ron became a high-end art dealer who frequently traveled around the world for his work. He was very successful and was enamored with the materialistic trappings money provided. A fancy mansion, a dream car, a closet full of Armani suits. Deborah was mother to their two children, and she was never comfortable with that lifestyle because where her heart lie was in helping people, and in particular homeless people. Denver said, sometimes you successful folks can rise up so high reaching for more stuff that you miss knowing God. But you can never stoop low to help somebody and have God miss knowing you. Ron became more and more caught up in his work and jet setting lifestyle. He and Deborah grew further apart until he found himself having a brief affair with an artist in California. At that point, Deborah insisted they go to counseling, and eventually their marriage was per- repaired. Several years later, Deborah was determined to become even more involved in helping people, and she decided to volunteer at the Union Gospel Mission and encouraged her husband to go with her. As the two of them served free meals one day, she saw Denver and determined that she and her husband would befriend him. Denver said, "'Mr. Ron, I was captive in the devil's prison. That was easy for Miss Debbie to see.' But I've got to tell you, many folks had seen me behind the bars in that prison for more than 30 years, and they just walked on by. They kept their eyes in their pocket and left me locked up. Now, I'm not trying to run those other folks down, because I was not a nice fellow. I was dangerous and probably just as happy to stay in my prison. But Miss Debbie was different. She saw me behind those bars and reached way down in her pocket and pulled out the keys God gave her and used one to unlock the prison door and set me free. At first, Ron had no interest in becoming friends with Denver, despite his wife's insistence. Over time, though, they struck up a friendship. In addition, despite initially feeling as though he was doing all the good by showing Denver the things he'd never had in life, Ron realized that Denver had even more to teach him about humility, charity, and being an authentic Christian. Ron recounts this exchange between the two. I heard that when white folks go fishing, they do something called catch and release. Catch and release. I nodded solemnly, suddenly nervous and curious at the same time. That really bothers me, Denver went on. I just can't figure it out. Because when colored folks go fishing, we're really proud of what we catch, and we take it and show it off to everybody that'll look. Then we eat what we catch. In other words, we use it to sustain us. So it really bothers me that white folks would go to all the trouble to catch a fish. Then when they've caught it, just throw it back in the water. He paused again, and the silence between us stretched a full minute. Then he said, "'Did you hear what I said?' I nodded, afraid to speak, afraid to offend. Denver looked away, searching the blue autumn sky, then locked on to me again with that drill-bit stare. So, Mr. Ron, it occurred to me, "'If you are fishing for a friend, you're just going to catch and release?' then I don't have any desire to be your friend. I returned Denver's gaze with what I hoped was a receptive expression and hung on. Suddenly, his eyes gentled and he spoke more softly than before, but if you're looking for a real friend, then I'll be one forever. During an annual checkup, Deborah was told she had an aggressive form of cancer. Her prognosis was dire, and after multiple surgeries and rounds of chemotherapy, she died less than two years later. Ron went through a struggle because he couldn't believe in a God who would let a woman as good as his wife suffer and die. And Denver ultimately moved in with Ron and slowly helped him piece his life and his faith back together. Ron said, Most people want to be circled by safety, not by the unexpected. The unexpected can take you out, but the unexpected can also take you over and change your life. Put a heart in your body where a stone used to be. Denver said, if you're really serious about helping somebody, crawl down in the ditch with them, bandage up their wounds, and stick with them until they're strong enough to crawl up on your back and get out. He also said, I'm not saying it's not all right to study the Bible. You've got to study the Bible to know the rules of life. But I notice a lot of folks doing more looking at the Bible than doing what it says. Ouch. I think the main reason that we look at the Bible and we don't do what it says is we don't want to take the risk. And I want you to think back over the men in this story and over Deborah too, and think about what risks each one of them took. And think about what risks or what the result would have been had they chosen not to take those risks. Because that's the same thing we're faced with, is we have a choice when we meet people to take a risk and form a relationship with them or to play it safe and walk away. And what happens to the kingdom, what happens to the gospel when we choose to play it safe and walk away? I want you to ask God this week if there are areas that you're holding back and obeying because of the risk involved. Not everybody in here is going to ask that question and God show them some area that they're not obeying because some of us are already taking the risks we need to and obeying. But we need to ask him the question every so often and let him speak into us and let him challenge us if we're not. So I want you to listen for what his response is. And then I want you to ask him to help you take whatever the next step is in what he said to you. Jesus seeks people he can trust to take risks. He entrusted the gospel to us. What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? And I want you to know that uh, the story, some of you will recognize it, that I'm relating to you about Ron and Denver and Debbie is a true story, and it did happen in Fort Worth, and it's a book called Same Kind of Different as Me. There's also a movie out right now that I have not seen. I've read the book, and the book is fabulous. I don't know anything about the movie, Um, but I didn't share that with you at the beginning Because I think some of us have a preconceived idea about what that is and and what that's like and that that's kind of cheesy and corny Christian film kind of stuff. But it's powerful and it's true. Um, And it made a difference in a lot of people's lives that read that book. And it made a difference definitely in these three people's lives. And I think it's a big challenge um, for all of us, in particular, talking about this passage in Luke and talking about taking risks. I asked Taylor to come and share a story that she wrote as well, and so I'm going to have her do that now, and you can come up here too, Taylor.
2: I am afraid, afraid of my future, my past, afraid of what might be beyond my understanding, afraid that who I've been will dictate who I am and will keep me eternally stuck in the dark. I am afraid of being unable to change the mess that I am into someone worthy of God's grace. We've been told that God's grace and love is freely given, and I know that, so why can't I believe it? Why is there still a part of me that believes, this is it, you've gone too far, there's no coming back? Why do I still fall into the traps of Satan's lies that I am not and never will be good enough for God? That others are better equipped to do the job that God has tasked me with? That I will never be able to work hard enough to achieve God's gifts as if I don't have them already? I am afraid of failing, afraid of standing out too much or causing too much attention to myself, because what if people don't like what they see? Afraid that the lies in my head are true, that if I can't love myself, how can anyone else? My pride oftentimes gets in the way of me being able to overcome these fears. Fools me into thinking that if I can just pretend like everything is okay, that I have my life and walk with God together, then maybe it will magically happen on its own. That I don't really need to actively change as long as I approach it with the mindset of success. When did the opinions of others become so much more important than the one that the only one that really matters? Why did I have to become so complacent in my adequacy that it has blinded me to the beauty of God and how much better what he offers really is? Luke 15 tells us God will pursue after us. He leaves the 99 sheep to go look after the one who wandered off. He welcomes back the lost son with open arms in celebration because his child has finally come home. God has helped me begin to realize that I am not the exception. I am not the one outlier that is disregarded as a mistake or a blip in the data. I was created with a purpose. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid of messing up because God will help me learn through it. I don't have to be afraid of being unable to change because when you follow the Lord who created the universe and relentlessly pursues everyone, how can you not model yourself after him? I am not afraid of acting like a fool for my father because he has chased me down and never gave up on the vision that he has for me, even if I didn't want to see it. It won't be easy. We are promised that much. There might be days that I fall into these traps again, but they will no longer be able to hold me. I get to choose faith. I get to choose to follow him through my doubts and questions because I have something greater. A father who loves and pursues me even when I don't deserve it.
0: See, stories are really personal, and I really appreciate Devin and Taylor both taking the risk to share this morning your personal story that you wrote um, and that was meaningful to you because that's a scary thing to do. And I had um, Taylor share last because I think that as I talk to people, that that's one of the first um, barriers To taking risks for the gospel is what she just shared is the barrier of what if I fail I'm not good enough and again if you keep your focus on Jesus if you keep your focus on the power that is offered through him and not our own selves then I think that that speaks to moving that barrier out of the way and allowing us to take those risks We're going to take communion together now. And as we take communion, I want you to think about the reasons that it's important to take risks and important to share the gospel with people. Like communion is all about the gospel. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the good news. It's all about what he's done for us. And remembering that should spur us on. To want to share that with other people and to want to give them the same gift that we've been given, to want to open their eyes to the same truth that we've seen and to the same power that lives in us. And so talk about that with people as you stand in line to take communion this morning. Um, If you haven't been here with us before, we've got three people at the back. They're holding a basket of bread and a cup of grape juice, and we just take a piece of bread and dip it into the grape juice. And then you'll come back to your seat because we're going to finish up with some songs, Um, but I'm going to pray for us before we take this communion together. Jesus, I just thank you for the way that you told stories to prepare people's hearts for the gospel. Um, God, I thank you for the way that you inspired the Bible to be written in story form. And I pray that in the coming days and weeks that we'll continue to think through that, that we'll continue to think how we can use the same um, stories and and stories that tell those stories to share the gospel with people. Um, I thank you for Jesus, and I thank you for um, the life that we have in him I thank you that um, we have salvation. I thank you that you give us what we don't deserve. And I pray, God, that we'll treat other people the same um, through the power of Christ in our lives. Uh, We are more than grateful. We don't have words to express our love. We don't have words to express our admiration, our honor for you. But we sure want to try. And I pray that as we take communion together today, that you would remind us why this is good news, that you would remind us of our work that Jesus has left us to do until he comes again. And Lord, we pray that he would come quickly. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week.